This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Standard issue for all women. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. It's Mickey greeting you, but it is Hannah's interview. And it is a corker, because Hannah caught up with Tracy King to chat about Tracy's incredible memoir, Learning to Think. Tracy grew up in a house mired in poverty, but filled with creativity, curiosity and love, although also marked by her father's alcoholism and her mother's agoraphobia. By the time she was 12, Tracy's father had been killed, her sister taken into care, and her mother ensnared by the promises of born-again Christianity. In this chops, Tracy chats to Hannah about how she went from born-again Christianity to pseudoscience to teaching herself to think critically. And when she applied that thinking to the violent death of her father, she uncovered a whole other story from the one she'd been told. Incredible, I did tell you. They're also talking about poverty, school refusal, and alcoholism. It is one hell of an interview. I mean, come on. How many chats start with a child exorcism? Learning to think a memoir about hardship, education, hellfire, family, finding a way to break free is published by Penguin on March the 7th. Tracy, thank you ever so much for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Exciting times. Your book is about to be released. I finished it this week. I think it's absolutely cracking read thank you for that it's called learning to think it's out on march the 7th in all good booksellers and it is i was gonna say it's a hell of a book in that i i almost quite literally go to hell uh, in it it opens with me being exercised when i'm 12 years old um so there's a bit of fire and brimstone in there but it's a book about a great many things which i'm sure we will get to the great many things in that sense, it's quite difficult to describe. I've been told that it's it, it's not like any other memoir that people have read, um, which it, it, I don't think that's strictly true. I think that's a reflection of the sort of memoirs that they read. I think it's it's quite rare for working class people to get a platform this big for a start. But also, you know, stories like mine are not that uncommon. It's just that it's uncommon for us to sort of come bursting out yeah. with a... You know, with a with a publisher and the kind of platforms that I I'm very fortunate to have access to to tell a, a story as complicated as this one. The name of the book, Colonial to Think, that's your pricey right there. And you open with the line As life stories go, mine feels unbelievable. And you do say one of the things that's held you back from talking about this earlier is your fear of people not believing you 
And we live in a time where put any really believable anecdote on Twitter and the didn't happen guys arrive at your doorstep. But on the other hand, we're tearing down memorial spars that stand as a memorial to the credulity, I think, we also have. How do you think the state of the nation's critical thinking is right now? That's a very good question. The difficulty with critical thinking is it's a hard sell if you position it like that, critical thinking. It sounds like work. (laughs) And actually it is. It kind of is. So at the moment, there's a little bit of a sort of anti-intellectual, you know, anti-expert, anti-fact vibe that, I'm hoping peaked in the pandemic as in, you know, I think that people have seen that that was a very bad idea. There was a lot of it in the pandemic with the anti-vaccines and people not knowing who to trust. You know, it didn't do anybody any good. But there isn't any impetus, certainly from the government, to prioritise critical thinking in education, which is where it's most important. Mm. The internet is both a blessing and a curse in that sense, in that for every bit of nonsense that has been debunked a thousand times that's on the internet or on TikTok, you know, every myth, every bit of pseudoscience, every bit of, you know, paranormal, whatever. There is also somebody doing the good work and debunking it, which is slightly exhausting because that's what has already been done. And these things tend to come around in sort of 30 year cycles, particularly the things that affect women or the things that are marketed to women, things like astrology, you know, alternative medicine. And that's oftentimes because there is no viable alternative. You know, if women aren't listened to by their doctors, if they're treated badly by healthcare, actively discriminated against, it's not surprising that we'll go and seek out alternatives where we are very listened to. Mm. The work always gets gets done the critical thinking work always gets done so i have sort of hope in that regard but as a as a general kind of cultural movement you know there are countries where it's just standard i have a friend from sweden and i was talking about critical thinking and she almost she was just puzzled and she said well is that just not normal is that just not normal to teach kids how to appraise things critically and look at evidence that's just baked into yeah. Our society, and I was like, "Well, no, it isn't, and it is. It's a problem that it isn't." So, yeah, I would say current state of Britain on the critical thinking ometer, two out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Now, you mentioned the exorcism. One of the things that was in your life was religion, and I think people who have come out of the other side of religion, and I know it probably seems like I'm saying this because I am one of those two have a much more interesting way of looking at the world sometimes. A few years ago, I interviewed Megan Phelps Roper, and it was she was absolutely, I think, one of the most interesting people I had ever spoken to. And how she thinks is fascinating to me. But it comes from having been, I don't know, well, for me, by example, I found out there wasn't a Father Christmas, and it all sort of spiralled from there. I just thought, oh, I've been lied to. What else are they lying to me about? And my belief in God kind of got wrapped up in that and I I never recovered from that. I think there's something in having once had a belief system that has been shaken by something that you start to apply that critically. That's not everybody, though, because some people just move on to a different belief system. And I think a lot of that gets transferred to politics. So I wonder if you could tell us how it was that you ended up leaving 
what it was that caused you to question the religion that you had had up until that point? I mean, I did precisely what you described there, which is I fell into a whole bunch of other belief systems immediately. And having been through a lot of therapy over the years, the reasons for that are because I was looking for answers to questions of trauma. So I became a born-again Christian when I was nine, which, you know, you're barely born at nine. I could be born again, but I was baptised into... So we were very poor. We grew up on a, a council estate in the Midlands, and those estates in the 80s, which was the height of sort of fundamentalist, happy, clappy religion, as we used to call it, there was a big American church, and they would send missionaries to poor estates in Britain specifically to convert, I'm going to say, very vulnerable women. So my mum was one of those women. Excuse me. That's all right. That's a lovely cat that's little, arrived into the middle of this. She's having a little scratch. <laughs> so my mum was very vulnerable. She had agoraphobia. She couldn't leave the house by herself, couldn't get a bus by herself. Her whole world was our little tiny estate. This church came along with the answers to everything, you know, all of the questions of poverty and why bad things happen to good people and why life was so difficult. And that was incredibly seductive to her. And I was kind of my mom's shadow. I should say in Birmingham, we say mom, just so so as not to alarm anybody. <laughs> Nobody knows why, but we all say mom. Um, she and I were a really kind of enmeshed unit, partly because of her phobias, you know, because I sort of had to accompany her everywhere. And partly because we were just great pals. You know, she she's brilliant and imaginative and fun. And, and we were just, you know, we were just really good pals. So when she converted, I followed suit. At nine, you know, I didn't really have any big questions. I wasn't really aware that we were poor even. And, I, you know, I wasn't that kind of bothered by it. I was aware that other people had stuff we didn't, you know, holidays and new things a lot. But, you know, my home life was was fun and happy. Uh, we had problems, uh, which we'll get to. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get to those later on. But I think I kind of converted because my mum did and because we suddenly had access to a slightly middle-class world where we were going on church picnics and outings and there was all this sort of free food and this American really exciting environment the the minister and his wife they were really good looking and they were young and they were fun and they had like these interesting board games and all these like weird foods involving marshmallows that I'd never had before so it was kind of cultural seduction the church stuff was also fun in a way. Like it wasn't the really dull, you know, the the church stuff that you're kind of stuck with in British schools in the 80s. You know, the, the songs are all really dull. Oh, you don't need to tell me. I mean, I was raised a Catholic. It's boring as heck and you don't really believe it. And you're kind of, everybody's cheating during school assembly when you're doing your prayers. You open your eye to see who else has got their eye open. You know, nobody took it seriously. This was very different. This was very fun. And I got to play the tambourine and the songs were funny. There were comedy songs about going to heaven in a baked bean tin. <laughs> this was a hoot. And I was like, oh, okay, Jesus is my friend. <laughs> and I kind of fell in love with Jesus, with this cool Jesus with his golden hair and his golden beard and his lambs and he's suffering the little children to come unto him. And I thought, oh, I'm little children. <laughs> I, I will come unto you. And I did. And uh, he was he was my big sort of protector. 
And then when I was 12, my father died in horrendous circumstances. And it was a very public and very traumatic death. And then the role of religion changed completely. And it became about fear. And so there's two strands to that, I think. The first one is the consolation that my father was in heaven, that his death had happened for a reason. All of the things that you would say to, you know, to a grieving widow and her children, that therefore we were going to see him again and he was with God and he was okay. And then the flip side Mm -hmm. of that was the amount of fear that entered our home because because of the manner in which he died but you know which was which was a violent death that evil existed and it was personal now you know that satan had noticed us and was trying to get to us and so there was satan in everything and this was also the peak of satanic panic yeah another american import so absolutely everything was satanic it wasn't just heavy metal and rock music that was satanic everything was satanic i mean there's a appalling scene in learning to think which i i try and find it funny because i use humor as a coping mechanism but also it is actually quite funny because the sort of juxtaposition of what we did and what we were doing it to which is we had a book burning which is horrendous please don't burn books (laughs) but the books that we burned were my fantasy books with wizards and dragons and goblins in them for children these were children's adventure books because we'd become convinced that satan could enter you through the pages of stories about the paranormal so we burned them which is I do find it funny. I know it's awful, but I do find it funny because that's so absurd. It's so extremely stupid and silly that I think the only thing I could do with that now is to sort of laugh at it and say, well, that happened. But that is so indicative of the isolation that we were experiencing and the way that we would look for answers for our trauma and our grief, which is why this horrific thing happened to my dad and to us, and just find solutions in banal everyday anything that we could so yeah it became about answers and therefore everything was suspect and it wasn't about the love of jesus anymore so to answer your question in a very long-winded way to get out of it i simply moved when i was 15 we moved to birmingham city we moved a couple of miles away from the city center And as soon as we were away from the influence of the church and away from the trauma of living on the estate where my dad had died, it just went away. It wasn't revelatory. You know, I didn't kind of have a big moment of, oh, that's not real. I just sort of stopped bothering. Once you stop going and once you're not surrounded by people who are constantly telling you that everything is about religion... You know, it was, I guess it was a little bit of the kind of the fog clearing, but mostly it was just, I had other things to do. And I just realised, oh, actually this doesn't, I don't need this anymore. And by that point, it had brought way more harm than good. You know, it brought so much fear and terror. And, you know, I had an exorcism performed on me when I was 12 because my father had died and I very clearly had PTSD which was not, that was not a thing then. 
We knew about shell shock from people in the war, but we didn't know about trauma. We didn't know about PTSD. All of the problems that I had were because of trauma, because of my father's death. And yet the solution to that was to exorcise me. And I described this in learning to think. Actually, the moment I was exorcised, I was supposed to fall backwards into the arms of the church elder, this really big guy named Bob. I was supposed to fall backwards into his arms when the minister cast out the demons. And I remember faking it so clearly i remember thinking oh i'm supposed to fall backwards now and if i don't i'll have let everybody down but also if i don't they'll think i'm still possessed by demons so i better fall so i fell so i think i think that exorcism expelled something yeah certainly not the trauma which got way worse before it got better. But I definitely think that was a a tiny, tiny seed of doubt, which I think was doubt about the performative Mm -hmm. nature of the religion because it was full on speaking in tongues and visions. It was that sort. And so I think I, and then I hit puberty and I think I started to get embarrassed by some of that stuff. It was all a bit awkward and performative. And then it just fell away. And then I was a, a teenager having to navigate a a new city. And I don't think that there was much place for religion in that world. So I wanted to replace it with something else. Can I ask you how you feel about it now? Because I had a a really interesting conversation with one of my friends the other day whose mother died. I came away from religion, particularly since there was a period in which I was forced to go to church between me stopping believing and my grandmother dying who was the real sort of force behind we should all go to church and I became very very anti-religion the religion and the royal family completely destroyed my relationship with my nan because she loved them both and I was just like no I'm very vocally anti both of them but going back to my friend she said to me the other day this is the time you kind of see the value in religion and I said because you think it would provide some comfort and she said No, because I think it would provide a blueprint of what I actually do now. She said, I have to think about what sort of funeral might she like? What sort of songs might she like? We've almost got too much choice. I have found myself softening my view to religion over the years because it provides that. I don't want that, but I think some people want it and I think some people need it. And so I wonder how you feel now about it. I mean, community is very, very important historically for women has always been very important. I was talking to a friend about exactly this because she and I both like going around old churches and cathedrals. And I was at Norwich Cathedral with my partner. He's very disapproving of such things, I think because they represent sort of, you know, money that could have been spent elsewhere. But I like them. I like the calm and the peace and the wood and the smells. You know, I like the vibe. <laughs> but um, I think it was Norwich Cathedral we were in. And I said, imagine what it was like during every war since this building was built. All the women would gather here, waiting and praying for mm. their men to come home and supporting each other. And where else would they have gone at a time when we didn't have secular alternatives? We barely have secular alternatives now. Birmingham City Council just announced they are defunding every community centre and 27 of 35 libraries. Good Lord. Well, they're bankrupt, aren't they? Yes. So the the dread that comes with that, because where 
else are we supposed to go? So there is that aspect, which I think has been incredibly valuable. I don't like the price of that. And to be fair, the price of admission of any church is not belief. You can go to any church and you can sit and you can just enjoy it. Nobody minds and nobody asks. They don't check. But ultimately, you know, it is a place for the worship of something that I don't believe in and disagree with. So I have really mixed feelings about it. I don't like religious funerals. I'm very uncomfortable at them. Yeah, agree. Because, and my dad's funeral, because we were still born again Christians at the time that he died, his funeral was a religious one. Um, and I, I don't remember the the service or the songs or anything like that. I remember thinking, that's my dad's body in there. Why don't I feel anything? Why can't I cry? Nobody had told me it's okay to not cry. And so, you know, if there had been a role for the church at that point, it might have been to reassure me uh. that the psychology of these things is complicated, but that's not what we got. We got, I've had a vision of your dad and he's in heaven and he's having a laugh with Jesus. And, you know, his death was for a reason. Somebody told us that because he was, he had very recently converted to born again Christianity. It took him a long time because he was a very skeptical man and he was still having doubts about it. And somebody had said, God took him to prove to him that God is real, which is a horrible yeah. thing to say, it's a terrible thing to say to a child. You know, I think personally, from my own experiences, the harm kind of outweighs the good, but there was good. You know, they brought us food and they gave us company but all of that came with the God stuff. Yeah. yeah. Which, so I, I don't know. I, like, I like a secular funeral. And, for you know, for my own part, I don't give a toss. Bury me raw. Just throw me in the Thames. You know, yeah. Medical science, whatever. It doesn't, I don't have any any romance about that whatsoever. But I do understand that that there are people who need that and they need a goodbye that fits in with, you know, their psychology and their grief um, and their own feelings or to respect the thoughts and beliefs of the person who's died you can't take that away from people that that's that's very valid and important but for me personally yeah it's it's very awkward because I have this it's not anger I'm not angry about those religious days I'm not angry about all the stuff that was said about my dad's death and how it made my trauma so much worse because anger is not a useful emotion to me but it does annoy the heck out of me. And if I could save somebody else from doing that to a child, yeah, then I would. Absolutely. All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. 
there, said it. And as quick a fix as it seemed to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Let's talk about your dad. There's something here, again, I want to read out of your book. Your dad was an alcoholic. My dad was also an alcoholic. There's a piece in your book where your father's death is explained to you as a child. And then you've sort of got a pricey of what was explained to you. And it's interesting because I'm not entirely sure whose voice this is in. And that might well be the point. This is sort of an accumulated bunch of facts regurgitated by your young mind. It's got something I found I couldn't stop thinking about in it. He is in the pub a great deal because before everything else, before family, he is a drinker. It's not his fault. Before family and it's not his fault are both two statements that as the child of an alcoholic, I've probably spent 95% of my life thinking about to be honest, I could put forward an argument that my dad did put booze before us, but I could also put an argument forward that he didn't. And I could put an argument forward previously saying it was his fault. And now I've come to believe it was absolutely not his fault. And I wonder whose words those are. My book is in chronological order. And so any period in the book is kind of written from the perspective of the age I was at the time. So when the police came and they told us what they believed had happened to my dad, that there was foul play in their words. At that time, I was looking at that through the lens of what I knew about my dad and my, you know, naive, childlike understanding of his drinking problems, which... Even then, before it was known as a disease, I understood it to be something that wasn't in his control because he tried so hard. He really, really tried. And I think, you know, he went to AA briefly. He went to his GP. These aren't things that I I knew at the time, you know, there was always talk of it and I think the environment was, because he wasn't a violent drunk and because he wasn't a destructive drunk, 
it was played down in the family. But I also knew, I think, that a lot of our money troubles, his difficulties holding down a job and some of the arguments that I could hear, you know, going on downstairs after I'd gone to bed. You know, I was, I was aware. I think I've come to the conclusion that it was not his fault, but it was his responsibility. That's the best I can do with it because addiction is absolutely a disease. It is absolutely something that once it has you in its claws, you know, it takes way more resources than my dad had. He had huge mental health problems, anxiety problems. He was in the RAF and I don't know what happened to him, but whatever it was, he had nightmares, you know, screaming nightmares every night. And he just had so many problems that he was so private about, you know, in the 80s when there wasn't really any help. It wasn't talked about. Men certainly were not encouraged to talk about those things. And so, you know, I think drinking had been his solace and solution to some of his problems, but also that he had a physical addiction that was very hard to get rid of. And he definitely tried. So, yeah, that kind of, it's not his fault. That's the 12-year-old's view. And that's also the perspective of the adults around me who were doing their absolute best to make sure that I had as good an opinion of my dad as yeah. as they possibly could, which, as we then find out later in the book, you know, via, via some twists and turns, um, was not perhaps the whole truth. It's complicated. And you'll know this, having experienced it yourself, that, you know, to perceive it as a failure is not fair, especially if the person tried to get help. But it is also something that impacted us as a family. And it's difficult not to have mixed feelings about that. So I, I sit between two stalls. I think I can have a different opinion on my dad every single day of the week. Depends what mood I'm in. It depends what's going on in my life. Despite the fact that I felt it was harder to be the adult child of an alcoholic than I did to be the child child of an alcoholic. I am very grateful that I did get to be an adult and have an adult's perspective while he was still there. Yeah. Losing an alcoholic parent when you're young is, it's quite the thing to happen to you. Even though alcohol as such wasn't the cause of your father's death. Whether or not it was a contributing factor, I do address in learning to think. And it's not really a knowable thing. I mean, the difficulty is there were so many contributing factors. How far back do you go? You know, the day he died was a very complicated day for my family. And alcohol was perhaps a factor or perhaps not <laughs> you know we it's not it's not a knowable thing and that's one of the things that's so difficult and, and partly what informs the title of the book my journey to critical thinking via first religion then all sorts of belief systems you know pseudoscience paranormal conspiracy theories you know i went through all of those belief systems to find these answers and then eventually found that there aren't any handy answers and that the fun bit is asking questions and so you know part of that was because to get to a satisfactory place with my grief and my trauma 
I needed to understand the world that I lived in. And in order to finally, finally do that, I had to address what had happened to my dad. And so I'd spent the intervening 35 years honing my critical thinking skills. I mean, I kind of, I found critical thinking by accident. This was early nineties and I was really into the conspiracy theories about aliens, ancient alien civilizations. <laughs> so the pyramids on Mars, you know, the pyramids on Mars, the faces on Mars, the pyramids of Egypt, you know, this was all aliens. Aliens had done that. They'd left ancient technology and they'd left clue. And I didn't realise this was all bobbin. <laughs> and so I was in a second-hand bookshop in Birmingham and I saw a book by Carl Sagan called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And it's a very American cover. So it's black and it's got a photo of a globe, with like a glow. And I thought that it was more conspiracy theory, alien, paranormal stuff, because I thought the pseudoscience that I was reading was science. And the background to that is when my father died when I was 12, I stopped going to school. I went on and off very briefly. So between the ages of 12 and 16, I had a couple of months of formal schooling, but I was a very bright bookish child. So I taught myself which is unusual, and I do not recommend it. If you can go to school, please go to school. <laughs> However, I was doing the best with, with what I could. So I taught myself, and the difficulty with that is when you have no guidance, is that, and I believed everything I read in a book was true. It didn't occur to me you're allowed to publish something that's not true. So I sort of fell into stuff that made me feel clever. And pseudoscience is very oh, good yes. at that. Yeah. The cherry picking and, you know, the kind of the Barnum statements, which are statements that are just vague enough that you can relate to them. And they go, oh, yeah, that, you know, that sounds true. And you don't realize, well, that would sound true to absolutely anybody. And so I fell for all that stuff, hook, line and sinker, because I didn't have any framework around it. So I was looking for more pseudoscience, thinking it was science. And I found this book, this Carl Sagan book, and I read it. And in it, he explicitly debunks all the stuff I'd just been reading, specifically the aliens built the pyramids, faces on Mars. He he directly addresses that, explains why it's pseudoscience, explains all the tricks that are used and all the other stuff that I'd believed in, you know, the faith healing, the alternative medicine, the astrology, all of that stuff. He debunks that and explains why that stuff can't work, doesn't work, what the evidence is. And so I found critical thinking and that then gave me a pathway or a structure to be self-taught in a way that was actually fruitful, which informed my entire career. But I'd never applied any of those critical thinking skills to my father's death. Because why would you? Well, you know, why would you decades later go back to the thing that had destroyed your life and destroyed your childhood and your mental health and pick it apart to see whether or not bits of it were true. Like, yeah. <laughs> why would you do that? It, it's, uh, but painful doesn't even come close. It's an incredibly destructive thing to do because, and the single most important line in that Carl Sagan book is, but I could be wrong. Yeah. If you go back and look at things that you only saw as a child, things that mean everything to you and find out you could be wrong, what's that going to do to you? And that's exactly what happened to me. I found out that this 
story of my dad, which, as you say, is told. You can't quite tell whose perspective it is. Is it the police inspectors? Is it my perspective? It's all of those things, including what was reported in the newspapers at the time. Quite simply, I was wrong. And so, yeah, that <laughs> that happened. And because I had, I was very, very fortunate in that A, I have very good therapists. B, I was writing a book, so that gave me a framework. It gave me something to do with all this yeah. information. And actually, I don't think I'd have gone and investigated my dad's death if I hadn't been writing a book. And when I started writing it, I, you know, I just simply went to fact check. I assumed that all of the things I believed about the circumstances of my dad's death, who did it, why they did it, you know, I would just simply get evidence to back that up. I didn't think that I would get evidence that it didn't happen the way that I'd always believed to an extraordinary degree. And so I was quite fortunate in that I had a great deal of experience with therapy and with trauma and with framing things in a way that's healthy. So I got to process it and just about survive and write a book about it at the same time. Don't get me wrong. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It so nearly broke me. It so, so nearly broke me. But if you know if i can borrow from my religious days you know the the idea of you know the sort of the truth will set you free or you know that there is a liberation to be had in knowing the truth that is absolutely proven to be the case knowing what happened even though it's harder to deal with and the role of my dad is not what i had always wanted it to be my notions of who is the goody and who is the baddie got all turned upside down it's still better knowing the truth, even though it's harder. Yeah. Have we got time for one more question? Yes, of course. Now, you mentioned that you didn't go to school, although before your father's death, your sister also was a school refuser, at which point, obviously, authorities get involved. And I think reading that story, it's a prime example of, of how class works in this country. If you're a middle-class family and your kids won't go to school, you have a problem. If you are a working-class family and your kids won't go to school, you are a problem. And I just wondered how you feel that since that happened to you, and I know you're actively interested in this, have things improved for children who are school refusers, particularly for children from working-class families? And if they haven't, how do they need to improve? Short answer, no. Things have not improved. They're worse in, in some senses. So our situation was, it was the mid-80s, and so school refusal wasn't a, a phrase. My sister was told she had school phobia, which is a phrase she prefers. She always says she wasn't refusing anything. She was terrified, and I think that's valid. But it was not studied, still not studied. And she was otherwise a very obedient, well-mannered, well-behaved, intelligent little girl. So this wasn't rebellion. It wasn't truancy. She had a severe anxiety disorder, which made school absolutely terrifying for her. Social services dealt with that by institutionalising her. They put her in a, in a psychiatric institution um, when she was 11, which was horrendous, because they didn't know what to do. And then she got shoved from pillar to post, you know, pupil referral units. And she was sort of this shy, bookish, you know, lovely little kid. And these pupil referral units were, were for excluded kids. And, you know, they were terrifying for her. 
And then eventually she got she got sent away to a school, which ended up working out quite well for her. They still don't know. I mean, now social services will still take kids into care for a school refusal, although there is more reluctance to do that now. So I think in circumstances like my sister's where everything else was fine, you know, my my parents were very loving and nurturing and, you know, they it was not a troubled home in that way. We weren't neglected. So if they do take a child for school refusal, it's, it will be because there are other issues, drugs in the home, that kind of thing. But it's certainly still true that working class or underclass kids as we were are treated very differently i have so many middle class friends who were school refusers and nothing happened to them because they'll all be fine and as i say in learning to think you know the state will view a working class school refuser as a future welfare burden that's simply all there is to it we need to get you into school because otherwise you know you're not going to have any qualifications and then you'll be on the dole forever which you know, my sister and I, we were both school refusers. I don't even have any GCSEs and we've done very well. So, you know, nick us to that, frankly. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I understand the logic, um, but these things lead to a great deal of inequality and, and you know, working class kids are, who can't go to school are treated very badly and with a great deal more suspicion, but without the requisite resources that are needed to support them in alternative methods of education. The pandemic changed everything because now there is an enormous number, enormous uptick in kids who are experiencing either anxiety related school refusal or other reasons for school refusal. And there aren't systems and resources in place for those kids. So they are falling, you know, through cracks and sometimes gaping holes. And that worries me a great deal. So you can't just get those kids back to school. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it works and a lot of things were tried. I mean, I was very lucky because I was a bright kid and because previous to my father's death, I'd been, you know, straight A student, teacher's pet, that kind of kid. They really tried very very hard to get me back to school but there were kids on that estate for example one of our neighbors who had been arrested for the murder of my father when he was 14 he was not guilty of that and he was eventually uh, released without charge he also stopped going to school and nothing was done in fact the school told him don't bother coming back because they just thought, you know, this is some lad, he's been arrested for murder, so he's obviously a wrong gun, you know, he's not worth our time, we'll just write him off. So even on the same estate, in the same school, at the same time period, two kids were treated completely differently based on the perception of our future value or our future potential. And I'm very good friends with that guy now, through the writing of my book, I, I met him and became friends with him. And he's very bright and very capable. And it drives me insane that he was treated so badly by the same system. You know, he was completely off the radar, just left to do his own thing because he's never going to amount to anything. Well, that's not true and it's not fair. I'm seeing that now, especially with young boys, you know, young working class boys, they're being written off, they're falling behind educationally. And if they do fall out of the school system, they're, you know, they're being ignored because it's not a problem that there seems to be any appetite to tackle. And it's not fair. It's a bit bleak, to be honest with you. And I, I kind of I don't want to end on a on a bleak one. 
so I will say, you know, firstly, I'm, I'm hoping with the publication of Learning to Think and through mine and my sister's own experiences that we will be able to raise a lot of awareness around the issue of school refusal. But there also need to be a lot of resources and investment put into it. And I don't see where politically that's coming from. Again, you know, councils are all bankrupt now, Birmingham City Council, as well as all the cuts to the arts and to libraries, community centres, etc. They're cutting funding for children by a huge amount. So there's less money. Something has to give there because it's going to affect not just the next generation, but the one after that and the one after that, you know, yeah. the, the children of those children. And nothing is more important than education. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I, in fact, I think of all the gifts me dad gave me, telling me that over and over and over again is the best one. He was obsessed by, yes. by it. Absolutely. Because he didn't get one. Yes. And, and he felt loved of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My parents were very, very clever. My dad was a very smart man. He was a real, he was a maths and he was an engineer in the area. He was a real maths guy. And so our entire home life was about the fun of learning. Tracy, this has been an absolute pleasure. Again, Learning to Think is out on March the 7th in all good bookshops. Are you reading your audio book or have you got somebody else doing it for you? I have recorded my own audio book. Excellent. It was very strange. I had to do my own parents' voices. Oh, that is a bit strange, yes. So weird. And slip into, because I'm not as brummy as I used to be. I've been in London for 16 years, so I'm not anything like as brummy as I used to be. So I had to kind of go into like this sort of what my mum's voice sounds like, <laughs> which is a bit, it's quite weird, but I quite liked it. Standard issue for all women.